Welcome to Coffee and Change. I'm Bill Kirst. As a business professional, a U.S. veteran, a lifelong learner, and an active listener, I help others navigate, understand, and adapt to our ever-changing workplace and world. As a third culture kid, I call many places home. Presently, Seattle is where I explore my creativity through the power of words and images. In this podcast, we journey with our guests, gaining knowledge and inspiration from their stories. Welcome back, and thanks for listening. My guest on episode 124 is Tim Creasy, the Chief Innovation Officer at ProSci. Tim is a change expert, a researcher, and an author and focuses on achieving change success with and through people. His work forms the world's largest body of knowledge in change management. As Chief Innovation Officer at ProSci, Tim brings new perspective and understanding to the world of change management. He has built a career that's steeped in a foundation of unparalleled insight from the challenges and trends to a vision for the future. Using his economics background, Tim brings data-rich analytics perspective to give organizations powerful, actionable insights into leading change for success. Enjoy the conversation. I'm usually out of focus. (laughs) Welcome to the world of change management. (laughs) Right? Indeed. Uh, Well, thank you first and foremost, Tim, for joining uh, Coffee and Change. It is uh, a great honor to have you on here. Um, You and I met actually years ago. Um, I don't know if you recall, but it was at the Dallas ACMP conference. How many years ago was that? Do you recall? Uh, I remember the Dallas one. It was 14 or 15, maybe? I think it was 15. 15. Uh, yeah. Uh, I remember it. I was on the back of a 14-day road trip. Okay. Uh, I had spoke at the Boys and Girls Club National Conference uh, and then had gone to Nashville and done a change management and healthcare special session and then went to Dallas for the back end of that. Were you in Boise at the time? I was not in Boise. I was in uh, Seattle at the time. And I had just, well, maybe that year before I just started the change management practice at my firm, West Monroe, who you probably know quite well. Um, I'd started the practice on the West coast. So we were a team, a mighty team of three. Um, and myself and one of my colleagues went to the conference in Dallas and then two of our, well, three of our colleagues from Chicago joined, including, um, a gentleman named Mike Hughes, who was heading up the, uh, OCM practice for West Monroe at the time. And yeah, it was a huge conference. Um, and we had we had a great time. I remember there was some line dancing, a lot of uh, celebration, um, and great sessions. And you and I, I think met stage left of a session that either you spoke at or, um, yeah, I think I think I might have uh, been one of the uh, people from the audience who asked a zinger of a question or something. So here we are again. Yeah, very good. <laughs> so um, those were the oh, those ACMP in person conferences were. I am very much looking forward to the one next year. I hear mm-hmm. 2024, there'll be another one. But those were the years of the dance-offs between That's... the ProSci crew and the Booz Allen Hamilton crew. Uh, That's right. Which, 
the pro side crew won every single time. Uh, yeah, uh, certainly. Well, Those consultants are, are not always known for their dancing skills, so yeah. um, you guys. I'm, I'm not sure the pro side crew was either, but we had a couple of. Uh, we definitely have a couple of folks that that definitely knew how to how to cut a rug for sure. Yeah. Well, before we get too deep into sort of the. Um, uh, you know, industry speak, I would love for you to sort of give an overview because there's a lot of people that listen to this podcast from around the world. Not all of them are, you know, keenly focused on organizational change management. Some of them are um, just, you know, fans and curious. So I'd love for you to start off by giving an overview, first and foremost, of ProSci, right, the organization you're a part of, um, for people who may not know the change management space. And then we can dive into talk about, you know, your role um, and what you do there. Yeah, very nice. And um, I've had this notion, how do you explain what it is we do in change management for a long time, right? Because I've been with ProSci for 22 years now. Uh, and so I started doing this as a joke. Um, you know, I'd travel all the time. You'd arrive to get the rental car, walk up to the counter. And first question they always ask is, are you here for business or pleasure? Mm -hmm. And I'd say, I'm here for business. And they'd say, what is it that you do for a job, right? It's part of their script. And I'd say, Oh, that's an awesome question. Do you have like an hour and a half so I can explain it to you? Yeah. And my wife was like, they're not, they don't appreciate that joke. They're going to put you in a lemon pretty soon. Uh, and so I got done using that as the joke and I decided I took a different approach. Are you here for business or pleasure? I'd say a business. They'd say, what do you do? And I'd point to their screen and I'd say the last, do you remember the last time they updated this uh, order management system and they say, oh my gosh, it was the longest three months of my life. They never told us what was coming and they just turned stuff on. I would say, ah, we help them think through that so they do a better job. So that's not how you feel. Uh, really good friend here in town. He now works at University of Idaho, but he used to be a principal at an elementary school. He said, Tim, I have no idea what it is you do for a job. I said, remember last year when you had to roll out those new standards? And he said, oh, my goodness. You know, parents in the, my office are first thing in the morning, teachers in my office till nine at night. I say, we help them think through how they could have done that better so that that's not how everybody felt as a result of that change. Um, a long story longer, I uh, almost got stuck at the border coming back from Toronto on a work trip one time uh, because I was there at the border. You know, are you here for business or work? Business. What is it you do for a job? I say, oh, do you remember the last time they updated this system? Uh, and 10 minutes later, he's there complaining about how he didn't get to be part of the special group that was telling him what they thought needed to be done with that system, even though Bill did. And Bill has been here two years less than he had. And so... I realized that every human being has universally experienced the challenge of change, right? What it feels like to tackle a change, whether it's at home or at work, and not to be a, a braggart, but I can almost guess that there's a change in your professional life that I can start to describe and you can say, oh man, that was so hard. Mm -hmm. Uh and at ProSci, we've done two decades of research to figure out how to make it less hard. Uh, what are the things to do right and the things to avoid doing wrong so that you can help your people be successful, so that your initiatives deliver expected results, so that the organization can actually become who it, is, who, who it wants to become. So <laughs> there's my very long answer to what it is uh, change management is. It's a, it's a great um, reminder. And I can tell you that I've also been in the same position you have at the Canadian border. Um, in fact, when I was at the Canadian border, um, 
to go do work for uh, a credit union in um, near Vancouver, right? They were doing a huge changeover implementation from their for their banking systems and their customer systems. And it was a two part journey for me, right? One, I had to get the work visa um, from Canada, I had to get, you know, authority to do so. And then I had to be, um, you know, let in. Well, uh, the first part was kind of interesting, because I actually had to go interview um, at a location just south of the Canadian US border. Um, And you go in for an interview, and you first meet with the United States (laughs) representative, right? Um, Customs and Border Patrol, Department of Homeland Security. And he's sitting there, you know, and there's a there's a just kind of a slight divider, almost like a cubicle divider between him and the person next to him. And the person next to him is the Canadian representative. Okay, so you can picture this, I walk up, you know, you get your tickets, kind of like a DMV, right, you go in, what, what is your purpose? Well, I'm here to file this application to get a Canadian work visa, because what is it you do? <laughs> I tried to explain to this. Oh man! This customs and you have to officer. do it twice in a row right. now, right? Ah. So, to make a long story short, the U.S. representative didn't understand anything of what I was talking about. In fact, he he challenged me, and he said, "I think you're making this up. I don't think this is a real job. Uh, I'm not, not sure I want to approve this." And now, this whole time, the Canadian uh, agent is literally on the other side of this very soft wall. So once I make it through with this U.S. agent and explain and, you know, boom, boom, stamp, stamp, okay, shift to your right, and I go meet the Canadian person. And that Canadian says, good morning. How are you? And I said, I'm doing great. Thank you. I'm so glad. I couldn't help but overhear. What you were talking about was fascinating. I remember the last time we went through a system change, right? And she started into that. So her experience was much more enjoyable. And I get the work visa, I proceed to the border um, to commence with my work. And I get, you know, a question asked at the border and the same thing. What is it you do? That doesn't really sound like a job. Not sure what classification to put on this thing. Um, You're a consultant, but you're not taking, are you taking another Canadian's job? No, I'm not taking a Canadian's job. I'm only here for like a couple days and I go back and, um, and it was just really interesting. It reminded me how complex it is to explain what we do. Um, and oftentimes I remember a story where my mom, you know, she could never explain what I did to people. I don't know. He does some sort of stuff. And she used to say to people, have you seen the movie up in the air? And I, and people are like, yeah, she's like, I think he does that. And I was like, mom, I don't do that. Like, don't, don't tell people I do that. Cause I do not fly to places and eliminate people's jobs. <laughs> That's not what I do. Um, but once she finally heard me, and this was during, you know, pandemic when I was visiting, uh, my parents and she sort of overheard me on a full day of conference calls, right? She's like, wow, is that what you do? And I said, whoa, I didn't realize you were listening. She goes, yeah, I couldn't help but hear. She's like, you're like a doctor for businesses. And the way she described it was so, pre- and she's a nurse, right? So she's like, you're like a doctor for businesses. You're helping people get better. You're helping them feel better. You're helping them be able to live kind of their optimal life in an organization um, in an organizational manner. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's pretty much what I do. So I'm always curious when you've been in what you've done for 20 years, um, does it ever get easier to, to explain that to people? <laughs> well, I think what's fascinating. So, you know, for years we've used the notion of the two sides of the change coin, mm-hmm. 
and I love playing with language, and so there's some fun double entendre, right? The two sides of the change coin, but one side is that technical side of change, where we design, develop, and deliver a solution to whatever the challenge or issue or opportunity is we have in front of us. The other side of the coin is the people side of change, where we help our people engage, adopt, and use whatever that solution is. Now, many of us have known for years that both sides of that coin exist, mm -hmm. and you have to pay attention to both sides of those coins, uh, of that coin. Um, you know, historically, we might have thought we could just tell people to jump, uh, you know, and the answer was how high. Uh, then there's an evolution of values within organizations. We started to say, you know what, we got to pay attention to helping people through the transitions we're asking them to make. And then March of 2020 happened. And I actually think there's some fascinating conditions organizations are now navigating right now as a result of the pandemic. And one of those conditions is it made the people side of change. You can't unsee it. Right. After what we all collectively just went through, right? The most collective and individual change we've ever all experienced. I could have walked past you every single day and never acknowledged you as somebody, you know, uh, beyond somebody I worked with. And then all of a sudden during a project update meeting, I was looking into your living room. Yeah. And I was watching your kids scream through another third grade virtual education attempt, right? Like, you can't unsee the people side of the organization once you see it in the way that I think we've all seen it. And uh, so I think it's fascinating, right? Mm -hmm. This notion of... Uh, how I'll bet you that conversation you had at the border would be totally different today because the people side yeah. of organizations, the people side of change is something that you, uh, you can't unsee after what we all went through. So yeah, ProSize or organization has spent 20, actually 25 years. Mm -hmm. This year is our 25th year anniversary of doing the change management research to find out what are the moving parts on that people side of the success equation. Um, and it's, I think an exciting time right now because yeah. everybody appreciates the people side of the success equation. Yeah. And I, I mean, I feel like one of my previous guests and, you know, now a friend, he, he describes what we've, what we're emerging out of now as sort of the, the grandest and greatest human experiment we've ever gone through in, in our generation. And as you, as you describe that, right, people, once you have that um, sort of telescope into the personal side of people's lives, it's hard to unsee that. And I think most importantly, it's hard not to meet that with a place or a intention of compassion, right? Everybody is always is going through something. I used to say this to my teams. Um, this is obviously pre pandemic, right? You never know what's going on at home. And frankly, you never know what happened to people on the way into work, right? I don't know if, if, if you come in in a bad mood, and I think, oh, is, is, is Tim just a jerk? Tim might have had a flat tire and had to pull over on the side of the highway, right? And and ask people to help and and get a tow and everything. So I have to remember that. But the pandemic, as you said, showed us that and sort of like a firsthand witnessing experience. And I agree with you. It's it has completely changed the way we do change. And I'm I'm curious from your standpoint, how has the research shifted? Right, we're now a couple years into this. Have your bedrocks of research started to change and reflect that? Yeah, and uh, before we jump into the research, yeah. like let's take uh, one step back because I was the pandemic accelerated it, um, this human experiment. But I was working with a good friend of mine, Patrick McCreesh, 
back in like 2014, 15. He was the guy on the opposite side of the floor during those dance-offs at ACMP, the, on the losing side of the, uh, the dance competition. Uh, but he and I were going to do a podcast. We never got it off the ground, but it was called, we were going to wrap it around the notion of the rehumanization of the workplace. Mm-hmm. So set back in 2015, 16, 17, and it wasn't one of these like rah, rah, treat your people right. It was way more observational. Like, look at all these trends that are happening in organizations right now that are all indicative of placing a higher value of the human beings that make up the organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, even right back then, you had appreciative inquiry. A lot of the early design thinking work was starting to go on. Communication, collaboration. We had like, you know, a dozen of these kind of contemporary themes that were happening around us. And the thread that we pulled through all of them was that there was a revaluing of the human being. Now, my background's economics, so I've got kind of like a fun story around how as you evolve from an agricultural economy to an industrial economy to a knowledge to a service to a connection economy, the human being has a different role in that kind of value chain. And I think there's some really neat evolution that's happening there. So I think those winds were blowing. We actually had artwork for the podcast in late 19. And then all of a sudden the pandemic hit and mm-hmm. we couldn't get it off the floor, but uh, that was happening. And then all of a sudden you're right. We had this pandemic, right? Um, and I, I like that you use the notion of experiment. Uh, Cause I have these conditions of the future of work and change that I talk about. Uh, and again, from more of like an ob- observational comic perspective, like not telling you what to do with it, but here's the conditions, the, the hand you and all your people are dealt. Um, one of them I talk about is the involuntary digital transformation. Yeah. Right? Because how long were CTOs, CIOs jabbering on about digital transformation? And what happened is we became really enamored with digitally enabled capabilities, we were putting all the zeros and ones in place, and thank goodness we did, mm-hmm. right? Uh, because in a matter of a day, day and a half, two, three days, we actually invoked that digital transformation, which for me, digital transformation is when those enabled capabilities become part of who we are and how we interact with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was all these digitally enabled capabilities that hadn't sunk into who we are, how we how we operated, and then boom, we made it happen. You know, we have clients that talked about five, 10-year accelerations of their technology roadmap. So the involuntary digital transformation is part of that experiment. Mm-hmm. Like, what are we going to do on the backside of it since we accelerated through a lot of the digital transformation we'd been talking about and envisioning for years? Uh, the next one I talk about is uh, the instantaneous remote work experiment. Mm-hmm. Right, empowered by that digital uh, involuntary digital transformation, we used to all have to go somewhere to do work, even though we could do it from anywhere. And then we proved we could do most work from anywhere. So now we've got this fascinating landscape of when and where does the where matter? What work do we bring back? Because we know, I presented last April for my first time during a keynote, is right about a year ago now, and. Uh, Man, I uh, I knew it was the first time I got on stage, I was going to lose it, all right? It had been over two years since I got to stand on stage with 200 people. Uh, 
and I completely broke the fourth wall at the start. I couldn't even control it. I said, y'all just make some noise because I haven't been in a room with 200 people making noise. Um, so there's things that we accomplish when we share space, but there's all kinds of things we proved we can do when we, when we didn't. So I had a group of senior leaders and change practitioners from a really big organization together in January, about a week apart. And I asked both of them some, some really fun questions, right? What capabilities emerged over the last three years that have to be part of the new workplace that we're, we're all co-creating together? Uh, in addition, what expectations emerged over those last three years that are now part of the way people show up when they, when they bring their whole selves to work. Right. Um, and what is the office for, (laughs) you know, what's it for? There's a Seth Godin, uh, design thinking blog that went out probably February, 2020, uh, about what's it for, like how important answering that question is. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, we take leaders and clients down this conversation of, you know, what, What's it for? Because we know it matters, but what does it matter for you and for your people? Um, and so, Bill, we're starting to aim some of the research engine at starting to unpack these kind of questions, yeah. right? Because it's fascinating, you know, that both the leaders and uh, practitioners put collaboration, communication, uh, collaboration, connection, team building up at the top of the list. But then when you start looking farther down the list, you start to see some interesting variation around what it is what's the value of us all coming together so yeah we're starting to aim the research there we did a huge deep dive around the top contributors to success in a post-pandemic world uh and so that was fascinating to Mm -hmm. start to say you know given this new place we're stepping into what are those emergent contributors to success that we need to have on our radar Mm -hmm. uh if we're going to navigate change more successfully so yeah i mean i i'm i'm curious obviously as a consumer of that research and um you know these these are these are the tools with which we call on in large organizations like mine um you know and, and i'm reminded also of what you said you know satya nadella said beautifully at the beginning of you know the pandemic if you're tired it's probably because we've done three years of technology transformation in about three days um, and I remember hearing that quote and just holding on to that quote because by echoing that back to some of my customers was the first time they could actually let their shoulders drop and give themselves some grace and appreciation for what they just did, right? You know this, a lot of these transformation journeys were multi-year journeys prior to that. And the pivot was almost instantaneous. We learned a lot about ourselves. Um, and I think that's good. Personally, I think that's good for humanity. That's good for corporations. That's good for institutions. Uh, and I will say that people need rest, right? Um, this the, the sort of evolution of self-care also came to the spotlight while, while we were going through this. Um, speaking a little bit of self-care, I would love to know, like, what does the day in the life of Tim look like, right? You're a chief innovation officer. That's a title that probably people think of more nestled in like a tech company, but you have this interesting title in the space of research and marketing and change and getting to interact with people and be on stages. Uh, what does the day in the life look like for Tim, the ch- chief innovation officer of ProSci? Yeah, uh, awesome question. Um, so I'm based out of Boise, Idaho. Um, so today it's a little bit gloomy. Um, the joke here is that we are not 
in April. We are in the hundredth day of January. <laughs> uh, so very long spring here. Um, so I get up in the morning. I have two boys. Uh, so most of my days begin with taking them to middle and high school or high school and middle school, respectively, uh, with usually a podcast or an audio book or some music on, uh, depending on the nature of the day. Um, you know, I spend a lot of my time doing kind of some of the core development work at ProSci around, you know, I'm building presentations. I got a presentation in about a month for SHRM talking about mm -hmm. the intersection of HR and training and learning and, and change management, um, writing, you know, articles, uh, podcasts, and then the research, right? You know, the research really is that focus where we do a good bit of the innovation, um, both in what we're studying, uh, the questions we're asking, how we're making sense of what we're, we're, we're learning about, and then how we're packaging it up for folks. And so, you know, I described the research process at ProSci, you know, begins with uh, topic selection. What is it that we want to learn more about uh, that we can equip practitioners with insights and better next steps uh, that'll help them move closer to more successful change? Um, after that, we formulate the questions. And question formulation is really important, right? Yeah. To make sure that we understand the nuance. We have a, a test we do. My oldest son is, uh, he's one of these kids that sees the entire world as opportunities and possibilities which you love long-term, but then short-term sometimes can drive you crazy, right? Uh, so we have what we call the Carter Smart Alec test. We call it a little more colorful language than that internally, but it's, um, can somebody provide an, a full, accurate, acceptable answer to the question and give you nothing meaningful or useful? So for instance, uh, what did you do with the feedback data? We used it. Oh man. That's an accurate, that's a, yes, that's a right answer, but it doesn't give me anything useful at all. Mm -hmm. So how did you use the feedback survey data? Right, we start to craft uh, because now Carter, the smart aleck, can't really answer that right. unless he gives me something meaningful that, that I can turn into, uh, you know, those kind of that synthesized better practice for, for the folks out there. Mm -hmm. uh, we collect the data, we go into synthesis analysis, and then we figure out how to produce it and give it to people in a way that, will put at their fingertips the answers to the questions they're asking that'll help them move their, their changes forward. So yeah. uh, it's been just a real acceleration over the last six months on the research side, just some fascinating, uh, some transformation going on there. So yeah. can I share with you a quote I just came across? Please, that I love? yeah, absolutely. Uh, Zora Neale Hurston, she was an American author, anthropologist, and filmmaker focused on kind of the African-American story in the American South. Uh, her, here's her quote, research is formalized curiosity. It's poking and prying with a purpose. And so to me, that's what we've, you know, we were founded by Jeff Hyatt, an insatiably curious engineer who, I mean, he's a mechanical engineer, master's degree in mechanical engineering, running these huge projects. And he starts to ask himself, why are some of, some of them succeeding and other ones swinging and missing, mm -hmm. right? What are those commonalities, the patterns I can spot in successful change and unsuccessful change? He focused his early work on business process reengineering, call center optimization. But do you know what the number one factor that kept coming out over and over was? Change. People side of change, yeah. right? It's not. It doesn't matter how beautiful the process is, how amazing the technology is. The fact that the buttons all work. I tell people this all the time. The buttons are going to work. 
guarantee you the tech guys are going to get the buttons to work, but that's not going to help us transform who we are as an organization if we can't get people uh, kind of on board. And so, yeah, it's been a been a wild, wild journey. Uh, yeah, watching that that happen, and then aiming the research in the in the arenas that'll help us kind of let people poke and prod mm -hmm. in the the things that are getting their way of of change success. Yeah, I love that. I love that sort of the concept of it's curiosity formalized, right? Research is curiosity formalized. And I also love the fact that your origins um, stem from a mechanical engineer because oftentimes, and, and I rarely entertain these discussions anymore, but where people couch what we do as, oh, it's soft and it's squishy and I don't really need it. And when you're talking to engineers or product owners, they don't really need it. Um, I think it's really helpful for people to hear that, you know, an organization like ProSci and its, you know, founding and research is backed by an engineer, is started by an engineer, because I think scientists and engineers um, and children, for that matter, look at the world differently. And one of the things I've loved about working where I work, obviously, now is I'm surrounded by engineers and product owners and product developers and innovators. And the great thing about it is you're in this forum where you get to poke and prod. Right when we're developing a product that is going to be rolled out um, to, you know, upwards of a hundred thousand people internally, and then the same product is going to be rolled out to millions of people across the globe. I think it's a really um, kind of prestigious place to be to be able to ask a question from the place of a change leader and say, "Hey." How is this going to feel to the person when they experience this button or this release or this? And one thing I've learned over the past you know, several years, but certainly in, in recent time, is it's a two-way exchange. It's a beautiful give and take. It's a learning. The engineers are teaching me about what it takes to build and the complexities. You know, the, the compliance people are teaching me and then vice versa, I'm teaching them about what it feels like to be on the receiving end of this, or if it's too constricting, or um, maybe it's overwhelming, right? It's too big. Those, those give and take conversations around the world, multiple time zones, have fed my soul in a way like I can't explain. And, and, and I think you'd geek out on that too, right? Because we have this cadre of brilliance coming together and, and asking these questions. And the thing that makes me so excited is they have enough of that base, right, in the work that you've done, that you've invested in companies like mine to say, hey, we don't need everybody to be a Jeff Hyatt, right? But we need everybody to understand the core components so that when somebody asks a question, they can say, oh, yeah, you know, I, I hadn't thought about that. But let's 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 look at it from that angle. Um, you know, it takes the guesswork out of it, right? So much of what we do for so many years was a little bit like saying, just trust me. My intuition is the following. And people would say, well, you're the change manager. You're the people expert. I guess I have to trust you. The thing that excites me now, and probably for your research as well, is the telemetry, right? The endpoints. We have data points everywhere. And when people work with me and they realize that I'm just as excited to open a Power BI dashboard and look at all of that telemetry because it informs my next question, right? It's a really interesting place to be right now. So I've said a lot there. I would just, I, was, I saw the light bulbs going off. I would love your thoughts. No, yeah, I think it's, um, 
being able to thread that needle of how do we help the organization mm -hmm. get both more productive because we know these changes are going to help us achieve what we set out to and acknowledge and appreciate human beings are the heartbeat of the organization and it is only with and through them that we're going to achieve the successful outcome of the change and i think it's kind of that shared understanding that we're all on the same team which is team land this change in the organization. <laughs> and, you know, I, yeah. I guess it's kind of like people are seeing both sides of that change coin now, right? Because um, there's a mm -hmm. lot of time where we spent so much time and energy polishing the people or the technical side of the coin. So it was one of those crazy high relief kind of things you'd seen, you know. And then on the other side, the people side of change, we just left it, you know, almost like a Play-Doh kind of a coin. Like it was lumpy and eh. And I think what you're observing is that kind of real acknowledgement that, yeah, both sides of the coin have always existed, do exist, and they're essential um, as we kind of go forward. Uh, one of my things that was making me smirk was, uh, as you were talking about, that kind of learning piece. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm terrified of needles, so I don't have any tattoos, but I know what my first three are whenever I get over my fear of them. Uh, and the third one is the phrase Ancora Imparo. Ancora Imparo, which I really latched onto in 2020 as we were all learning tremendously about ourselves and our organizations and the world around us. Uh, it's a, Italian, translates to Yet I Am Still Learning. Mm -hmm. And it's allegedly Michelangelo's final words. So here, one of the smartest beings to ever walk the earth on the way out says, yet I am still learning. And I'm thinking, wow, um, what an amazing mindset to approach the entire world um, that we're navigating, uh, both as, as change professionals, but just kind of as people, right? That every opportunity is an opportunity for us to better understand um, what it is that's going around us and, and how we can help the people we, we engage with. So, Yeah, I love that. And it reminds me, you know, you and you citing Michelangelo brings me to a whole nother place of like the art and science of change, right? There was this great session that was hosted, um, I believe by the Pacific Northwest chapter of ACMP years ago in Portland, and they hosted it at the Portland Art Museum. And it was called the, the, the Science and Art of Change. Uh, and I loved it because those that hosted it put us in a place where we were in a gallery and we, we were surrounded by art on the walls. And we were kind of talking about how we as people move through the world and how we lead others through change. And we found ourselves sort of accessing deeper levels of conversation. Why? Because we were inspired by the art that was around all of us, right? The art on the walls and every one of those pieces of art told a story. And there's so much truth to that, right? I mean, when somebody comes in and says, just give me the framework, just give me the plan, and let me do the checklist. I know that's not really my kind of change program, right? I, I know that's not going to be the optimal for me. It's certainly not going to be the optimal for them. And and um, I hope that we build that relationship where they understand the value of that. Um, because you miss the art, right? We miss all of the art. Um, imagine if we had restricted Michelangelo <laughs> to one color, one paintbrush, and one frame we wouldn't have half the inspirations that we have in the world. And so I love that you use that analogy and that example because this work is not for the faint of heart. 
And this work is not for those that don't want to be lifelong learners. That's what I've learned over 20 years of doing it. Um, and I'm sure you see that in your in your research. Well, yeah, absolutely. I love that you bring up the art and science piece because, uh, well, one, I uh, got to speak for an ACMP NorCal event at, a, at the MENA Gallery in San Francisco mm -hmm. one time. Mm -hmm. uh, same kind of experience, right? Where I was actually up on stage with a couple of humongous horse sculptures, uh, yeah. which was the first time I ever presented with horses. Um, I think there's this neat notion, right, that art is the creation of meaning through some kind of medium, and mm -hmm. change and our role as change agents is really around that creation of meaning for for folks as they are navigating that change in front of them so um i've actually been completely obsessed with rick rubin lately um, oh god me too uh, did loving you read his book, his loving book? all his podcasts yes. you read the, like, the creative act a way of being i have it on audiobook oh my gosh <laughs> i've listened to it twice and i bought the uh hard copy on a recent well the kids were on spring break and so we did spring break with my mom and my sister and their family it was one yeah. of those like best laid plans of mice and men gang glee, right because i had all mm -hmm. these great podcasts and uh design your work life by bill barrett and then i bought mm -hmm. the physical book of the create we'll make sure we say it slowly the Creative Act, A Way of Being by Rick Rubin came out in January, I think. I've already listened to it twice, and then I bought the physical one because I'm going to make notes the whole time, right? But uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, to me, his perspective on the, the, so right, the title itself is a paradox. The Creative Act, A Way of Being. And so my take on it, and I'd love to get your take, is, you know, that the art, the artistic act of the artist is living a way that keeps you connected to the world around you uh, so that you are in that position to bring to life whatever that artistic work is in whatever your medium is. Uh, and I think, yeah, as both a leader of innovation at ProSci as kind of a thinker, a uh, lifelong learner, but certainly as somebody equipping folks to help navigate change more effectively, um, it's a wiring, an internal wiring that I think is uh, really helpful for the change folks. Yeah, so you've been geeking out on Ruben too? I have, yeah. So so my take on it is um, I, I've, I've obviously seen a lot of interviews with him. Um, and his, his most recent interview I listened to was on my favorite podcast of all time, On Being, with Krista Tippett. Um, and that is, that is the podcast that honestly, many, many, many moons ago ins inspired me to start this podcast because it, you know, when people say we have our doctors, we have our therapists, we have our bartenders, our barbers, our bandoliers, right? These are the people we go to, to sort of learn and heal and pour our heart out. Well, the podcast on being was that for me 20 years ago and it has always been that way. So one of the most recent episodes she had Rick Rubin on and it was, it was just such a generous exchange, right? Because here was an interviewer who wasn't trying to snap Rick into anything other than who he is. And to your point, he's a breathing, walking paradox. And when I, you know, listen to his work and his book uh, and read some of his stuff, this is, this is sort of my, my experience with it. It's almost like you have a friend you haven't seen in a really long time. And that friend says, Hey, uh, I'm in town and I'm going for a really long drive. Do you want to just join me? And I'll, you know, I'll drop you off where you need to go. And you say, sure. 
no problem. And you expect it to just be like a 10 minute car ride. And three and a half hours later, you have meandered the unstructured poetry of someone's mind, but you leave that experience like so full of hope and joy and wanting to write the next great American song, great American novel or award-winning poem. And I know that some people I've talked to felt it was, it was almost too unstructured and erratic, but it was that exact reason that I loved it because I felt like I was going on all these car rides with this beautiful being and I didn't want it to be linear. Life is not linear. Art is not linear and change is not linear. So I felt like I was being spoken back to by a kindred spirit. Yeah, I love, and the audiobook is great, right? Because it's him narrating it, and so you get his mm -hmm. voice behind the whole thing. I, I so appreciated, yeah, that journey that you got to go on with him. Mm -hmm. um, and I love, I've also taken in a bunch of the podcasts uh, here in the last few months as he's been promoting the book. And, um, you know, that observation that if anybody could write a memoir about the crazy, amazing things they've seen, he has it right there. But instead, he gives us this gift of a lens through which to make sense of the world, you know? Yeah. And I think that's the real gift is those lenses that you can look through and see the world around you and, and make sense of it in a new way. So I started playing yeah. with the idea of sense lenses, like mm -hmm. capturing these frameworks that I use to kind of look at the world in a, in a way that makes it more accessible. So it's one of yeah. the things, you know, uh, doing a lot of speaking podcasts and whatnot, um, the, the notion of making common the commonplace and the common challenge uncommonly accessible yeah. is something that I really you know try to bring to life in a lot of the work that we do um, is how do you even something like adcar or the two sides of the change coin even turns of phrase and frameworks that help people see something that they hadn't unlocked yet uh, as something they can now unlock. Um, it also reminds me of, uh, I was listening to, a, and I forget which podcast it was, but um, Liz Gilbert, uh, mm -hmm. author of Eat, Love, Pray. Um, yeah. And she was talking about, you know, acts of beautiful art, like a beautiful piece of art when you see something. And, and she described that, again, paradox, that notion of, oh my gosh, I've never looked at it that way. And it's so stunningly obvious, there's no other way it could possibly be. Right, yeah. like that—that that notion of both novel—it's a novel way to look at the world. But man, it helps me make sense of so many of my lived experiences. Um, and to me, that's what, yeah, the the change. A lot of the work we do in the the building of the change management practice, you know, the conducting of the research, the you know, lifting out those. What are the biggest obstacles sponsors are facing? managing change today in this new hybrid workplace, right? Yeah. That notion of the bi-directional piece that you had mentioned earlier, right? Managing by watching, walking around. Yeah. That's bi-directional, right? People see the leader walking around, but the leader picks up an ambient understanding of the organization by walking around. And so, yeah, yeah trying to elevate and identify those patterns of shared experience and then equip people with tips that they can use to, uh, to navigate it differently is... That's kind of been the goal, right? So, yeah, and I love that concept of the sense lenses, right? Because as you think about it, you know, I, I tend to think in a very multi-dimensional way, right? So, if we've got two-dimensional linear data, that's fine. But imagine if we could l layer on top of it, right? Say, give me the sense lens, 
and tell me, okay, here we have an org structure. That's fine. Now I want to layer on top of it. And this is some of the work that Microsoft has done, which is pretty fascinating. Now show me the actual way knowledge moves in between hearts and minds and illuminate, right? And then put another layer on top of that, right? Technology is introduced to lessen the friction. Now illuminate, right? As we think about the where we're going next, right? We've seen just in the past months, right? OpenAI, ChatGPT. I mean, talk about illuminating, talk about inspiring, talk about this concept of a co-pilot. Everybody has a first draft. I would love to to know from you, I mean, I've done a lot of thinking and writing about this and I, I will continue to do so. I actually started a newsletter series about it recently on LinkedIn because I think, no, I, I don't think, I know with conviction that good change leaders are essential to this next era of AI. As we talk about ChatGPT, OpenAI, you're the chief innovation officer of ProSci. I'm sure this is coming across your desk. I'm sure partners are asking you. My question is, have you formulated reflections, thoughts, uh, meanderings on this innovation? Yeah. Um, can we jump into it real quick? But I want to circle back to one thing you had yeah. just said, which I thought Please. was fascinating. That. Um, that notion of you can lay, you know, begin with the org chart, but then layer on top of it a better understanding of information flow and whatnot. Um, I don't know what you studied in undergrad, but I studied uh, economics and political science, mm-hmm. and none of the life sciences because that biology anatomy I stayed away from all that stuff. But I remember those books having that book as a child, and it was the anatomy of a human being, right? And it was those solophane pages. Yeah. And so you like could put down the bone, the skeletal structure, and then you had those clear pages, but it had like this one was the guts, and then mm-hmm. this one was the circulatory system. Um, that popped into my head as you were describing adding those layers of understanding of the actual dynamics of the organization above and beyond how it got drawn on a on a page, right? So. Um, I just had to share that with you because as you were describing yeah. it, it was like such the impactful visual of like layers of understanding as we uh, as we lay it on top. So yeah, and that's honestly that's what that's what I strive for, right? That's exactly what we strive for, and why this is hard work, right? Because some of those some of those right self-made pieces of paper, transparencies, whatever you want to call them, they haven't even been charted yet, right? So we've got to do it and then say, trust me. I'm going to put this on top and you are going to have an illuminated view, right? But it takes trust and curiosity going back to your, like, we're always learning. Um, so yeah, no, I appreciate that, that visual. I do remember those books as a kid. Um, all right. So open AI, chat GPT, that kind of, uh, yeah, um, everybody's talking about it. <laughs> everybody is. I'll, I'll start with what I think is one of my favorite takes on it so far. Yeah. Uh, and it was by Rick Rubin uh, when he was on the Tim Ferriss show most recently. Uh, and so Ferris tees it up a little bit rambly, but the notion that, you know, you're a creative, Ferris comes from a family of creatives, like what's your take on GPT and the notion of creative creation, right, uh, of, of artistic works? Uh, and he, his reply back is, as an end, it's not interesting to me. As a means, it's really interesting. And he goes on to use the analogy of being a hip-hop producer and doing Mm -hmm. these crate dives. 
So back in the day, you have a crate full of music. You're just popping music in over and over, sitting there all afternoon, right? And he describes, you're not looking for the next artist. You're not looking for the next song, even. You're looking for a moment. A moment where something magical was done that helps you see the world or something you are working on in a whole different way. Uh, and so, and then he parallels that to GPT, right? Um, it's not going to give you the song, but it might, get, if you have it churn out a thousand riffs, it might create a moment that you then, as the artist, can pick up and elevate in your work. And so I love that kind of analogy, right? I'll, first, I want to see what you think about that one, and then we can get into use, use I love cases. it, because I, be, I used to be a crate diver. Ah, um, for reals! Yeah, so, so not only was I a crate diver, but for those that remember these, uh, these, these years, there were these things called CD listening bars. I don't know if you remember these, um, but this was probably when I was in high school. Um, so I'm going to say early, early 90s, right? And CD listening bars were this sort of new thing that popped on the scene. And it's exactly what it is, right? You would show up in an old bar that was no longer a bar. There would be a bartender, but he was essentially a music bartender. You would pull up a stool. There would be Discmans, Sony Discmans on the bar plugged in. You'd have headphones and you would say to said musical bartender, I'm feeling like Stevie Wonder today. Great. Awesome. Let me go get you some Stevie Wonder like and they get you three CDs and you put it and you listen and you sample and you listen with the hope that you'll essentially buy one. I adored those experiences, Tim. I can tell you exactly where I was. San Juan Capistrano, Dana Point, Huntington Beach. I would come home for the summers. This is actually ironically when I lived in Russia. Um, and I would come back with my family uh, to visit, you know, grandparents and cousins. And the first thing I'd say to a grandparent was, can you take me to the CD listening bar? And they would drop me off and they would head to Costco across the street and go get a bunch of stuff and say, I'll see you back here in a couple hours. And it, it was the equivalent, you know, the 90s equivalent of crate diving. And when I think about how happy I was in those moments of discovery and sensation, right? You hear a new song, a new artist, a new voice, and you are sort of broken open to this world of, I've never felt that way before. And some of the artists that I still listen to today, huge influences came from those CD listening bars. And it was kind of this beautiful dance, right? You're trusting someone doesn't really know you, but is taking indicators, right? Here's an indicator, here's a, here's a, a hint, and here's a taste. Make, make me something that will delight me. And I consider that very similar to the work I do every day, right? I get a hint, an indicator, and a taste. And then somebody says, delight me. And my job every day is to delight as many people as I can as taking them through change. So I love that you brought that up because it brought all these memories back for me. <laughs> Yeah, very nice. And it's that ability to get that, ex it's the exposure and experience, right? Uh, yeah. And how it helps shape yeah, our worldview and how we expect to kind of navigate through it. So, yeah. Uh, um, do, you, do you anticipate, to take it a little further, do you anticipate ChatGPT, OpenAI, disrupting the work you do in any way, day to day or possibly in the future? Yeah, I would be um, certainly like I've spent some time into it, you know, mm -hmm. uh, because it's fascinating. Um, and what I think is interesting, this is kind of where I am with it right now. I've, 
I've been spending a good number of evenings lately diving in. Because, you know, the first pass you take at it is you have it kind of do some fun you know, tell me a story about this. Uh, mm-hmm. In Hunter S. Thompson's voice, describe a PTA meeting. Uh, one of my favorites <laughs> is, you know, write me a six stanza poem about resistance to electronic health records at a hospital. Like, and it's yeah. it's fun and it's mm-hmm. beautiful. Uh, but then what I started doing recently was aiming at data stacks I had already. Yeah. Like, I got this big data stack because I do these, yeah, I, I do a webinar, right? I ask everybody on the webinar, what's the most, how would you answer the question, we as an organization should invest the time and energy to build a change capability? And there's 600 responses that come in. And in the webinar, we talk about it in real time and we identify themes uh, kind of as they pop up on the screen because we're using interactive software. But, um, and I've always gone back and read through them and every once in a while, if I had the capacity, I would turn it into an interesting article. And then in three clicks, I can generate the, uh, you know, and what's fascinating, kind of the the notion of the crate digging, right? Um, I'll have it run, you know, give me the, generate the top seven themes, generate the top 13 themes as action items, not 13. That's the only thing I'm superstitious about. So I never would use 13 there, but um, generate me 20 themes with full descriptions and like having it turn the Rubik's cube, because I kind of know what's in there. I already sure. know what's in there, um, but I'm just looking for that thing that I can pick up and accentuate in a different way. Um, so, yeah, I think there's certainly yeah. opportunity on that genera- generation side and the making sense of, like, do you know how much feedback we have now, right? Yeah. We started with that notion of digital, you know, the involuntary digital transformation, uh, digitally enabled capabilities into digital transformation. Hyper-personalization mm-hmm. is one of those digitally enabled capabilities that we hadn't really leaned into really uh, yeah. significantly. Um, but that's something we can start to lean into. And as an yeah. internal change agent, for me to be able to make sense of what I'm hearing and picking up and being told from all different parts of the organization, I think... Yeah, uh, shame on us if we don't lean into the ability to have faster jumping off points and quicker sense making of this vast amount of data that we're we're now exposed to. Yeah, I love the idea of, you know, as you're describing it, I kind of want to be akin to a Rick Rubin of change, right? I want to be that producer that people feel like, hey, I don't know how, but you get me. You get me and you're bringing something out in me. Um, that's probably why I was so drawn to him and his work. Um, the other thing, which I find interesting, you just said was this aspect of like the Rubik's cube, right? We, we essentially know because right, 25 years of research, we know everything it's kind of going to be in the container, but actually we are not humanly capable of seeing all angles, iterations, reflections, bends in the light, if you will, at, at the same time. And so we are allowing the technology to help us achieve that without um, without uh, without spending a ton of ton of time right which I, which I think to me is where the real gift comes from because if I can give people back time to go do something that otherwise they wouldn't be able to right go create go wonder go daydream like that is what's going to set an organization apart um, as opposed to like, go get lost in a, you know, thousand line spreadsheet and come up for air and call me when you're done. Yeah, absolutely.
So, and um, I think, I mean, there was the same narrative back in the old business process reengineering days, right? This fear mm -hmm. that by um, uh, documenting and optimizing processes, it's all just about putting people out of business. And it was, yeah. I, I always thought, no, no, it's about getting in control of the parts of the process that should be so that we can free up your time to apply what's uniquely human in you to the things that you can bring value to. And so I think in the same way, um, it's not about the replacement of, it's about freeing up. Um, yeah. The other thing I think is interesting is sample size. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, I've always described it from a ProSci perspective, right? Sitting as the chief innovation officer at ProSci, I help not, you know hundreds of organizations a year think about how to grow and grow their change muscle. For my favorite client that's working at this higher ed organization, that's where they're, they've been for the last four years. And before that, they had four years trying to do it at a rate. So their sample size of organizations having run the plays through is one. Um, yeah. Whereas we're getting this massive exposure given our kind of our role in the market and the research that we do. Uh, GPT, I think there's kind of that sample size parallel as well, um, where I can have it generate for me, kind of like your crate digging, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. give me the uh, more of a sample size than I would have had otherwise and do it with a click of a button because then I can extract uh, what's going to help me move forward. So, Yeah, I love that and the aspect of sort of increased sample size and the power of market of one, right? Hyper-personalization, right? So, so every single person can feel like a market of one, which, as you know, belonging and inclusion are key aspects of change, Um which I appreciate that. Um, l last couple questions. One has to do with, like you just said, right? People you get to partner with and clients you love and customers you love. You guys have a vast, impressive database of people you've worked with, corporations, nonprofit institutions. Is there someone you would love to work with that you haven't yet? Like, do you have a dream, right? Like Rick Rubin's got a dream list of people that he's like, I would love to produce for. Do you have that list? Have you thought through that and, and, and who you would love to do this work with? Um, uh, it's kind of interesting. I'll give you kind of answers at both ends of the spectrum. Um, sure. I, when we pivoted, so prior to the pandemic on March 10th of 2020, ProSci had never taught a virtual three-day program. Uh, wow. March 17th <laughs> of 2020, we taught our very first virtual program. Mm -hmm. So we managed to pivot this whole thing and it was unreal bringing people in for three straight days of intensive, interactive, immersive training on a Zoom screen, having we had just stepped into that space, right? Um, we thought, how do we keep this magic of the experience, right? Because the unforgettable experience is really a part of the three-day. So I started doing cameo drop-ins. Nice. And I would drop in for 15 minutes on these classes, which was... First of all, think about that, right? Talk about it digitally enabled by this digital yeah. transformation. Because if these classes were around the country or the world, I can't drop in on any of them. I had one day, it was a Thursday, I dropped in on 11 classes. So I started my day in the morning with a class that was in Europe, finishing up their day. I ended my day with a class that was starting their next day in Australia. So I dropped in on 180 change participants, practitioners. And I kind of had, when I dropped in on the classes, I'd tell them thank you on three accounts. Um, thank you on behalf of your projects. Your projects and initiatives are more likely to meet objectives on time, on budget, be less risky, 
because you're being attentive to the people side of the change. We know it from the data, so thank you on behalf of your projects. Thank you on behalf of your organization, because the muscle to outchange, and even if you're in the public sector, you're still working to outchange global pandemics, talent stuff, like all of us are working to outchange the pressures we're under. And you are part of your organization growing that muscle. So thank you on behalf of your organization. But my third thank you is always on behalf of the individual human beings who are going to experience better change journeys when you brought this to life. Andy, Becky, Charlie, Debbie, Eddie, Franny, Harry, Izzy. And so, you know, to answer your question, who am I dying to work with, Bill? At one level, it's every single person that comes to the program that's going to help the human beings around them experience better change. The other side, uh, the, the organization I've enjoyed working with the most, I think I mentioned them earlier, was Boys and Girls Club of America. Yeah. And I think the reason there is that if their changes get implemented more effectively, the kids who need the most help get better help. Uh, and so it's kind of like a two degrees of separation. But if I can help these leaders to land their change more effectively, kids that need the most help get it. And so... Um, there's been very few things that I think have come close to that. And I don't know that, uh, you know, helping an organization that's helping the people that need help do it better is kind of where, where I like to go with our, our time if we can. Yeah. I love that. It's just, it's such a great reminder, right? That the like focus on the next generation, because if we can, then we literally build better change leaders. So we don't have to, right. I've always told people, my job is to write myself out of a job. My job is to get you so healthy and thriving and delighted and happy that you can do this on your own and, and pay it forward. So I, that's a great reminder. Um, I did have an exercise where we we're going to run through some chat GPT generated questions. But honestly, I'm looking back at them now and I'm like, no, <laughs> because to your point, right? Like it's a kind of fun exercise to do just to see, you know, hey, assume assume the role of a journalist and you're going to meet with the chief innovation officer. What would you say? Like, honestly, they're kind of meh. And I've enjoyed our conversation too much to dilute it. So. Nice. Well, yeah, it's certainly appreciated. Uh, really fun to explore this. Uh, you know, I think there's one of the things we found in that latest round of research. We asked, what's the biggest change? What's the least different thing about change post-pandemic than before? And what's the biggest th difference? The mm -hmm. least different thing identified by 1,421 change practitioners from around the world is that the human being is still the heartbeat of change. And what I think is interesting is for those of us who have been in this discipline for a couple of decades, there's a little bit of kind of like welcome to the party. Um, but I think it's rejuvenating, right? Uh, that the party of treat your people right and they're going to be better off, the projects are going to succeed, and the organization's going to be better off. That's a fun party to be inviting people to. So uh, I've so appreciated the conversation. And uh, I'll have mm -hmm. you send me the uh, the questions that GPT generated yeah, just because I'm intrigued I'll, now about uh, yeah. what it came up with. I will definitely do that. And you do remind me, right? I often said this when I was in the military um, and you know, shifting that part of my life. I used to say to people, I'm having the time of my life. I'm just waiting for the world to catch up. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So thank you for your time, Tim. This was great. Um, you've inspired me to think about CD listening bars, uh, again, and disc bins and all sorts of things. Um, I appreciate your time. Um, before I let you go, where can people find out more about ProSci, right? Let's say there's people who are like, wow, this sounds fascinating. I've never heard of them. Maybe there's an intern out there that would love to work for your organization. Where's the best place for those people to go to learn more? Yeah, uh, 
ProSci.com is where you want to start. There's loads of content there. You'll find blogs, thought leadership articles, literally hundreds of hours of recorded webinars. Uh, the one that we did just a couple of weeks ago about emerging contributors to top success is up there. Uh, I'm going to be most active on LinkedIn, and so that's where you're going to mm -hmm. get a lot of my top of mind or late in the evening kind of uh, commentary. Uh, um, but yeah, that's where you'll you'll come to find us. We got a pretty nice YouTube presence too, with a bunch of Tim talks, which are fun little three to five minute videos of me answering questions about the discipline and uh, a number number of other aspects about the moving parts of successful change. So, and Bill, so appreciated the time, and uh, yeah, yeah, I really, really, uh, really enjoyed it. So, thank you very much.